Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 13th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Casella v. Hughes, a case where the plaintiff sought civil damages from a Tucson police officer after being shot four times in her front yard by the officer, who had responded to a call that the plaintiff had been acting erratically. She was holding a kitchen knife at her side, but seemed to present no imminent threat to the responding officer separated from her by a gate, nor to another woman who was also in the yard several feet from the plaintiff. When it heard the appeal, the Ninth Circuit had deemed the woman's constitutional rights violated, remarking that she had a constitutional right to walk down her driveway with a knife without being shot. The Ninth Circuit thus concluded that the plaintiff's Section 1983 civil rights claim could go forward and reversed a district court summary judgment grant in the officer's favor, which was based on qualified immunity grounds. But a seven-justice per curiam cohort reversed, explicitly refraining from weighing in as to whether or not the plaintiff's constitutional rights were violated, though it deemed that proposition, quote, not at all evident. Instead, in what's become a fairly regular pattern, without hearing arguments or a full briefing, the court summarily determined that the officer was entitled to qualified immunity and that the case should be dismissed because there existed on the books no close on-point precedent giving the officer notice that the force he used in the situation was excessive. Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg dissented, and Sotomayor opined that her colleagues in the majority, with this and several other summary qualified immunity reversals in recent terms, have sent law enforcement officers the clear message that they should not feel deterred from shooting first and asking questions later. Today, happy to be joined by two wonderful guests to help us sketch out the history and shifting contours of the qualified immunity doctrine, which is a fairly modern outgrowth of the 1871 civil rights law that provides the basis for Section 1983 suits. It's a doctrine that some argue rests on legally dubious footing, as the 1871 law makes no reference to any sort of good-faith defense. First, we'll be hearing from Jay Schweikert, the Cato Institute, who's part of that organization's project on criminal justice. Then, we'll be joined by Professor James Fander, from Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, who has long researched and written on the areas of qualified immunity and constitutional civil rights claims. Jay is a policy analyst with Cato who has helped author a number of amicus briefs advising courts to reconsider the legal grounding for the qualified immunity doctrine, a grounding Schreiker views as suspect. He also says policy considerations, principal among them law enforcement accountability, recommend a less reliably granted defense especially in a context where police officers are generally indemnified for civil penalties their conduct may incur. He joins us now. Jay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, here, another Supreme Court term and uh, another summary reversal in a, in a qualified immunity case. I'm not sure if your reaction was like mine, seeing a, a pure curiam opinion in a qualified immunity um, case, but I, I figured really without opening it, I could sort of predict what the outcome would have been. And uh, indeed, what I figured was, the case that here an officer shot a woman in a residential front yard in, in Tucson, Arizona, where that woman seemed to pose no real immediate threat that, that really would necessitate deadly force. Uh, but nonetheless, the court deemed that uh, by dint of the qualified immunity doctrine, that officer was immune from a civil rights suit brought based on the circumstances. Um, did you have a, a similar reaction? I guess um, a similar summary reversal was rendered last year in a case that I understand Cato and in your project there on criminal justice briefed. Uh, in that brief, you suggested that the qualified immunity doctrine really 
should be reconsidered altogether. You also write that it doesn't have much or really any legal basis. I suppose that that being the case, why has the the doctrine taken the trajectory that it has where it really seems sort of pro forma that the court, when it gets a qualified immunity case, without even briefing, without argument, tends to, to send it right back down for dismissal? Yeah, I mean, just to start with your initial question, I was that surprised, you know, not at all. I mean, if you look at the the trajectory of the court's decisions in this area, um, it's it's really overwhelmingly one-sided. Since 1982, which is when the sort of current version of qualified immunity was really established, um, that that was the uh, there was a case that year that that came up with the clearly established law standard, which basically says uh, any any state actor is not going to be held liable. Uh, for committing constitutional violations unless that violation uh, was of clearly established law. Um, and the key thing to understand about that is that it's applied at an extraordinarily granular level of generality. Um, it doesn't just mean that there has to be a clear legal principle, but there really has to be a, a case on point with functionally similar facts. Uh, the trend of the cases and how lower courts are increasingly deciding these cases something is not going to be held to be clearly established unless there's really, really similar conduct uh, in other cases. And so since 1982, the court has decided 32 cases. Uh, All but four of those have granted immunity. And 26 out of those 28 cases that granted immunity were reversals. So they've been constantly slapping down lower courts. Uh, And this, I believe, is is the fifth summary reversal in the last four years. Uh, which is a very rare procedure for the court to use. Um, they reserve it for a very few set of things, and qualified immunity is one of them. So it's something that they're very aggressive about. Uh, you know, t- taking a step back to kind of look at how we got where we are. So as as, you, as your listeners may know, qualified immunity is defense to a particular federal civil rights statute. This is often called Section 1983 for where it's in the U.S. Code. Um, that basically says if a state actor violates your constitutional rights, uh, they'll be liable in federal court. That's basically all it says. This was passed in 1871, so it's a very old statute. It's part of the uh, Reconstruction Acts um, in, intended in large part to uh, secure the protections of the 14th Amendment to recently freed slaves. And for the first half century of, ex- of its existence, the court didn't apply any sort of good faith defense to it. There's a case, case as late as 1915 where some state officials uh, who, were, uh, who had been enforcing a stat- an election statute that violated the 15th Amendment's ban on racial discrimination tried to say, hey, we didn't know it was uh, unconstitutional. And the court said, you know, too bad. There's no good faith defense, and they were held liable. And then in 1967, the court sort of spins on a dime, and without really any acknowledgement of this prior case law, says, oh, well, of course, you know, there's this historical good faith defense. And since then, the court has kind of developed this myth, I really think, I mean, it's, uh, about these, this purportedly historical common law baseline that, like, when this statute was passed, everyone knew that, you know, there were, there was this sort of good faith def- defense, um, for, for state officers. And that's simply not true. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just, just not true at the, at an object level. Uh, a Chicago professor named Will Bode has recently published an article called Is Qualified Immunity Unlawful? It is just a very thorough his- look at the history of this doctrine that shows that, you know, he, he th- thoroughly uh, examines and rebuts all of the court's purported legal rationales for this doctrine. So I think I, I think part of why we're here now is that in, in a lot of these cases, which were in the 70s and 80s, uh, maybe the, the Supreme Court in general was not quite as attentive to 
text and history and certain, you know, kind of legal authority for some of its doctrine. It treated this doctrine much like other kind of free-floating federal common law doctrines as opposed to really grounding it in the text and history of the statute. And it's kind of taken off. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we're all sort of trying to figure out exactly why this issue in particular is something that the justices are so focused on and devoting so much attention to. But, you know, I mean, it is absolutely an outlier among the uh, court's current caseload. Will Boat actually was on the, the show last year around the time we had uh, the previous summary reversal. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the good faith exception sort of starting to, to be built into this doctrine. I guess it's, it is a, uh, a defense that's found in, in different areas of constitutional law. For example, the, the good faith exception to the Fourth Amendment's warrant uh, requirement. Why in this particular context is there sort of less grounding or is it less proper for there be for there to be some sort of good faith defense sort of inserted in here? So I think there, there's some there's a legal answer and there are sort of more policy based answers. I mean the, the the legal answer is that it's you know this this is this is purportedly a defense this is you know an interpretation of a statute, right? Um, this is uh, but it, in it but the statute on its face says nothing about any such defense. And there wasn't any such historical defense at common law. Um, one of the points that Will makes a, does a great job of showing in his article is that the the baseline rule um, uh, for constitutional violations was strict liability. Uh, if you committed, if you broke the law, whether or not you you know could have thought it was if, you know we had reason to know it was unlawful, you did so at your own peril. Now it, it's I think it's an it's a difficult and complicated policy question about when individuals should be liable or when they should be indemnified. And if you look at the uh, at the 19th century cases, there were a lot of petitions to Congress for indemnification. So if, if a federal official uh, had broken the law, um, they would be held liable, uh, and the person who was the victim of that would get a relief. But then if they, you know, had a, if they had a good argument, they would petition Congress and Congress would indemnify them. And I think there are some cases where that's a reasonable policy outcome, where, you know, maybe you did make a reasonable mistake. Um, but I think the relevant question for the, for judicial purposes, for interpreting the statute is, if your rights are violated, do you get a remedy? And we have a statute that says exactly that. And what the Qualified Immunity Doctrine does is erect this hurdle in front of that says, not so fast. Even if we decide that your rights are violated, you have to go through this showing of, you know, finding a case with basically similar facts before you can get a remedy. Well, and it's like, you know, comparing it to the Fourth Amendment, I think, is, is, is an interesting case because if you look at, and in particular, the, uh, the good faith exception for, say, the exclusionary rule, uh, for when evidence can be admitted, you know, it, it's kind of the court trying to have it both ways, right? Because sometimes what the court will say in defense of qualified immunity is, well, you know, these civil rights cases are not the, uh, you know, the only ways you can get relief, you know, it's not the only area where the law can be developed. Um, so, for instance, in, you know, Fourth Amendment law can also be, be developed in criminal cases. And you have a remedy in criminal cases for, you know, with the exclusion of evidence. But then if you're in those cases, they then use this good faith exception to, ex you know, to overcome the exclusionary rule. So the evidence can still be, you know, admitted against you. So you're basically a double loser. On neither side, do you, there, you know, do you have any possible remedy for Again, by what we're stipulating here is a constitutional violation. So, you know, what, what, why I think that's such a problem is that what it, you know, is that it goes right to the heart of accountability for our law enforcement officers. 
you know, qualified immunity is a problem because it denies individuals who are, whose rights are violated, it denies them justice, and that's a problem on its own. But at a larger structural level, it's a problem because it essentially tells state actors and law enforcement in particular that they will almost certainly not be held liable for uh, unlawful conduct. That except in the most obvious or egregious cases, the courts will bend over backwards to find a way to excuse them from liability, even if they break the law. Uh, whereas I think what we want is we want uh, our law enforcement to be attuned to what the legal standards are. And when they deviate from those and when they go too far, it's an important function of juries in the case of, you know, juries adjudicating uh, these civil rights cases to be able to, to sort of as the voice of the community say, no, we're not going to tolerate that. There, there are going to be consequences for this kind of conduct. And that all and qualified immunity stops all, in almost all cases stops that question from ever going to a jury. Yeah, just to pull out uh, one specific thread there, you spoke for about indemnity, um, and and that's something I've always thought that makes the the growth of qualified immunity interesting because indemnity regimes sort of exist in the background whereby police departments, like say the Tucson Police Department, will usually, um, in most instances, pay any civil. Uh, case damages that their officers accrue for actions that they take in the performance of their duties. Perhaps the actions taken here, unless they're sort of really outside the scope of reasonableness. Um, so there's already that sort of prophylactic measure, that defense, um, keeping police officers from being too much on the hook for, for taking a, a particular action um, in, in circumstances. So it, it seems sort of odd that, that in with that being the case, that qualified immunity nonetheless uh, has, has grown up so strongly over the past you know few decades. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I think it's, it's you know there, there's there's I mean there's this I think a, a reasonable sounding concern, and in some cases it might be reasonable about oh you know sometimes you have to make tough calls, and do we really want you know police officers like personally liable for these huge amounts just because you know some judge says what they did was illegal. I, I, you know, I, I understand why that sort of is a reasonable concern in the abstract, but as you mentioned, in almost all cases, even now with qualified immunity, police are indemnified. You know, police unions are incredibly powerful, um, effective political lobbying forces. They successfully secure uh, indemnification provisions in almost all of their, you know, agreements. Um, I, and if you look at sort of the actual payouts in these cases, it, it'd be overwhelming, like over 99% of payouts in civil rights cases, whether in a settlement or in a judgment, ultimately comes from the municipality, not from the individual officers. So we're almost never talking about, even if you got, if you waved your wand and got rid of qualified immunity tomorrow, it still wouldn't be the case that many police officers were ultimately personally liable per paying for the, for the payment. What it would mean is that individuals whose rights were violated by those officers or other, or other state officials would get the relief that they deserve. Now, I think it is an important and complicated question, frankly, about what the best regime is for deciding who pays. Because it's not necessarily ideal to just make taxpayers foot the bill, right? I mean, if the city is just paying out all these cases and the, and the individuals who commit the conduct are never held liable, then you don't really have accountability either. Um, one proposal that we've been, uh, I think is very interesting and has a lot of promise is basically treating law enforcement like other groups of professionals and having them self-insure. Um, you know, doctors carry, uh, you know, liability insurance so that, you know, if there's a you know, significant claim of malpractice, ultimately, you know, th th there's going to be some way that that's funded. But th the thing that's critical here is that, you know, say what you will about insurance companies, they are extremely good at analyzing and assessing risk. 
So if you had uh, municipalities and, and officers carrying liability insurance, you would very quickly have a very accurate window into who, which individual officers or which individual departments were creating uh, the greatest risk, and presumably that would affect the cost of premiums and would create incentives to, you know, maintain the best officers and to, you know, eventually get rid of the worst ones. So that's just one idea. I think there are others. I mean, I think it is it is a, a complicated policy problem about how to decide exactly who pays and under what circumstances. But I think what that shows is that it's a it's a legislative problem, right? It, it's an inherently legislative problem to sort of decide what kind of in, indemnification or insurance regime or whatever is ideal. You know, hopefully, you know, different states could um, experiment with different possibilities. We'd have a sense of seeing which ones work better or worse. But the but our main point for now is that, again, on the judicial side, from the perspective of the plaintiff whose rights are violated, do they get a remedy or don't they? And we have a federal statute that says they do. Congress made a judgment in 1871 that if you're, if, if a state actor violates your constitutional or federal rights, they'll be liable. And the Supreme Court has basically over, you know, has disagreed with that judgment and come up with its own policy choice, which is qualified immunity, um, without really admitting that that's what they've done. They've, they're purporting to interpret Congress's statute, but what they've really done is rewritten it entirely. Could you tell me a bit about the about your your organization, the Cato Institute's motivation to uh, to step into the breach here? It's a fairly new project trying to push back against the qualified immunity doctrine there, right? And is the the concern of, of your organization more the the legal sleight of hand here the court has pulled, or more the the policy implications that are that are entailed? Uh, tell me about the the, the sort of primary concerns um, that, that your group has. Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm with the Project on Criminal Justice at Cato, and um, w- one of our tasks in the last year has, has been to try to identify what are the most important strategic priorities in a criminal justice space, because there are so many problems in criminal justice that you could you can't possibly address them all. And they're all serious, but I think that for an organization like ours, we've really tried to drill down into what are the structural problems causing the, you know the sort of everyday injustices. And I think two, there are two really important ones that we're focused on right now. One is the practical elimination of citizen participation in the criminal justice system, most notably through the practical elimination of the criminal jury trial, that almost all cases now, criminal convictions are obtained through plea bargaining as opposed through jury trials, which is what our Bill of Rights uh, imagines. And another one, which is really where qualified immunity comes in, is accountability. Because if you don't have accountability, then it really doesn't matter what substantive rules you decide on in the first instance. It doesn't matter what we say police officers should or should not be allowed to do or what rights people have unless we know that there's going to be accountability if agents of the state run afoul of that. So if you don't have accountability, you don't have anything. And in our system, the main tool we have for accountability, uh, especially in the case of law enforcement, um, is civil uh, is civil actions, is monetary damages. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult, uh, as we've seen in a lot of recent cases, to hold police officers criminally liable for even very egregious misconduct. Um, and even if you get the, the will to bring a prosecution, it's very difficult to obtain a conviction. I think it's kind of a joke to suggest that internal discipline, disciplinary procedures are sufficient to ensure accountability. Those are kind of black boxes that citizens are also boxed out of. So really, our tool is civil liability, is being able to say, this person broke the law, and violated my rights when they did it, and they're liable for it. And being able to go to, a, and this is why I think this is related to our, our 
concern about the jury trial is that in this case it's a civil jury, but it's important to be able to bring that case to a jury of your peers and make the argument that what happened here was not okay and that there needs to be a remedy for it. Uh, that is that is what Congress envisioned and imagined when it when it passed the original version of Section 1983 to create this cause of action, and the Supreme Court has basically stopped that from happening in most cases. And so it's not only, as I mentioned earlier, it's not only denying justice to these plaintiffs, but it's undercutting the major, the best tool we have to ensure accountability uh, in law enforcement and in our legal system generally. The, the concerns that you have, have, have cited are all articulated by Justice Sotomayor in her dissent, where she's drawn by Justice Ginsburg. Um, I think you could sort of synthesize her dissent as uh, an overall concern that the court, and she, I think she uses this phrase specifically, is sending the message to to law enforcement that they can shoot first and, and ask questions later. Um, I guess one question I might have for you is, is it strike you as strange at all that there aren't more justices that at least show some concern for the the stance or the message that the court seems to be conveying? I mean, one way to look at the court's ruling is it's just applying precedent that's built up over a generation. But you, know, you brought out the lens and the court exists within you know, a social and political context in which violent encounters between law enforcement officers and unarmed citizens is just a pretty salient social issue. Um, and so it, it seems a little bit out of tune that these cases are, are reversed quickly without argument and without really kind of much time spent by the justice saying, you know, we acknowledge that these are issues that you know matter to society, but uh, we're ruling this way anyway. They just are pretty cursorily rendered. I guess just what are your thoughts on sort of that bit of a mismatch? Yeah, I think it's a good question, um, especially because uh, until very, I mean, for the most part, qualified immunity has been something that the court has been nearly unanimous on. I mean, I'm very encouraged by Justice Sotomayor's dissent and frankly the fact that even one other justice joined her um, because a lot of these cases, uh, the major cases establishing and sort of cementing this doctrine have been 9-0 decisions. Um, it, it, it has not been the kind of you know tr- issue area that admits of the sort of what we think of as the traditional political divides on the court. Um, I, I think there's starting to be some increasing consen- understanding um, both with the sort of very serious policy implications that this doctrine has, and I think you know these are things that uh, Justice Sotomayor really focuses on in this opinion in terms of the message it sends to police officers to sort of basically shoot first, ask questions later, and even if you get it wrong, you're not going to be held accountable. I think she's completely right. Um, I do think a lot of several other justices have uh, focused more on the lack of legal justification for the doctrine in the first place. Um, so just last year. In another qualified immunity case, um, Ziglar v. Abbasi, Justice Thomas wrote a separate opinion, uh, basically saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm concurring here because this correctly applies our precedent, but really we need to reconsider this whole area because it, it really just historically it does not. We have we have we have purported to base this doctrine on a common law history of immunity that is just not there. Uh, it, this, so where does this come from? It doesn't come from the text of the statute. It doesn't come from the history. It's essentially something the court made up. And so he's, he, and he explicitly, uh, invited, you know, he says in an appropriate case, we should reconsider this. And it's actually been historically some of the more traditionally conservative justices who, but who are very concerned about, uh, sort of judicial decision making processes 
who have focused on this. Justice Scalia um, also noted um, when he was still on the court uh, that this doctrine is not purported to be faithful to common law history. Justice Kennedy has done the same. So my hope uh, is that you know, these, this sort of group of justices, we can find an appropriate case for this group of justices to come together and recognize that, you know, for this combination, for, for, you know, for both the, the, the magnitude of the legal error that the court made when it invented this doctrine and the pernicious consequences that it has for everyday citizens, it desperately needs to be and ought to be reconsidered. Uh, our, our, we are, we are, Cato is currently engaged in a very active, um, amicus campaign. Uh, where we're filing uh, briefs in qualified immunity cases, both uh, with the Supreme Court and also the, at the appellate level, to really try to diffuse into the judicial consciousness the, the utter lack of justification for this doctrine. I, I think that if, if it's something that you look at honestly, there's just not a defense for it. And I think that, frankly, I, I think that the court is starting to become slightly embarrassed by it. Um, uh, you know, because there are most justices on the court now, you know, left and right, I think do care a lot about, um, you know, sound legal analysis and, you know, making sure that doctrines and decisions are well founded and have, you know, proper sources and getting the text right and getting the history right. Uh, I think that's something that the court cares a lot more about now than it did several decades ago um, when it came up with qualified immunity. Uh, so we want to make it as obvious as we can that this area needs attention and correction. And I, you know, I think the more pressure we can build on that, the more, you know, hope I have that, you know, we get to a case where, you know, at least five justices kind of maybe motivated by different sets of concerns could sort of come together and seriously cut back on this doctrine. Yeah. That, that would be my last question is sort of the, the levers you hope your organization can, can use to, to bring about the change that, that you're seeking. Uh, it sounds like being a pretty, Constant gadfly in the amicus filings is a is a good route in terms of the, sort of the, the right case. What what does that look like? Because you could imagine, say, if you find a case with such egregious facts on the ground that the court could say, well, you know, qualified immunity is fine, but these facts are just you know so egregious and, and they um, fit a previous precedent that qualified immunity is not granted, but the doctrine itself remains. So what what is kind of the right case, the perfect case in this circumstance? It's an interesting question. I mean, you know. To some, I mean, I can speculate about that to some extent. I think it's somewhat premature just because, you know, realistically, precedent doesn't get changed that quickly. And I think right now, this is more, the amicus campaign is more of a communicative function. Um, and, you know, what we're hoping for is to draw out opinions, maybe separate opinions from appellate judges or even, you know, more uh, separate opinions from the Supreme Court, you know, sort of setting the stage for this and noting what these concerns are. I, I mean, I think ultimately... Um, any case where under existing precedent, you know, any case where the court can say this person acted unconstitutionally, unlawfully, but it wasn't beyond all debate whether it was unconstitutional at the time, so qualified immunity. I mean, ultimately, any, any case with that, with, with that framework, which is a lot of cases, is an appropriate case for reconsideration because it should be a valid argument to say, actually, qualified immunity is completely baseless, and the fact that my rights were violated is enough under the statute. You know, I mean, as a matter of, like, legal strategy, uh, you know, there may be cases with sort of more or less sort of sympathetic facts, but, I mean, I think if you're, if you're really sort of trying to just think about what is the kind of question you have to get before the court for it to reconsider it, 
you know, anytime qualified immunity is making the difference between illegal conduct, having a remedy and and not having a remedy, you know, that's an appropriate case. I mean, I I, I will also note, I mean, I have talked mostly about the courts here. This is something that Congress could fix as well. I mean, this is nominally an interpretation of a statute. Um, And so, you know, I think that the, the Supreme Court has done kind of a little bit of a shell game here because it has completely changed the meaning of the statute that Congress enacted, but purported to attribute this meet, this, this doctrine to Congress itself. So, um, part of our effort has also been to educate, uh, staffers on the Hill about this doctrine and, 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 and how drastically it diverges from the statute Congress enacted and to, you know, generate interest on that front as well. You know, right now, I mean, it's still somewhat early stages and I, I couldn't tell you what I, you know, is the better approach. I mean, we're trying to, generate as much energy as we can in all of them. But, you know, Congress could write a statute, to, you know, pass a, pass a law tomorrow that basically said, well, it, would, it could say sort of the same, you know, the same thing, but, and we really mean it. Or, or more specifically, could, you know, eliminate this defense. I, I think, but I think the mere fact that Congress could fix it is not itself a good, a, a reason that the courts shouldn't because they sort of created this problem in the first place. So, you know, I mean, it's really just a matter of figuring out where where there's going to, you know, the, the best opening is going to be. And right now we're trying to keep an open mind and pursue every avenue we can. That sounds like a multi-front campaign that I should let you get back to it. Uh, Jay, Jay Schweikert, <laughs> Policy Analyst with the Cato's Institute Project, Project on Criminal Justice. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. James Fander is the Owen L. Kuhn Professor of Law at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law. He's written in depth on the areas of qualified immunity and constitutional civil rights claims. He's the author of the 2017 book, Constitutional Torts in the War on Terror. He also wrote a 2011 Columbia Law Review article entitled Resolving the Qualified Immunity Dilemma, Constitutional Tort Claims for Nominal Damages, in which he argues that qualified immunity stagnates the constitutional civil rights doctrine and that nominal damage suits, which perhaps would not meet qualified immunity defenses, could allow for courts to consider claims on their merits and in that way continue to develop a robust doctrine that gives law enforcement officers both state and federal clear notice as to when their conduct crosses a constitutional line. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. So uh, our listeners just heard from Jay Schweikert. Of the Cato Institute, we spoke about qualified immunity, and um, he identified some particular problems that he sees in the Doctrine Act. One of them being that uh, that courts really aren't prevented from from parsing the qualified immunity doctrine pretty granularly, which is to say that you know if a, a 1983 civil rights claim depends on both a constitutional violation having taken place, and also there being some sort of clear precedent on the books identifying that. Uh, constitutional violation as, in fact, a violation. Um, if courts can can very uh, finely parse previous law and, and instant case law or in, instant cases in front of them, then even previous precedent that's very close to the 1983 claim that's brought to bar, um, you know, might not be close enough. Um, it's a real standard to say, well, you know, what is close enough? So obviously the, the way to kind of solve that is if the constellation of identified constitutional violations is you know, is grown, course deciding in these very fact-based civil rights claims when there has uh, been, in fact, a, a violation. But 
In a paper you wrote a few years ago, you, you noted, and this is something we didn't get into in my chat with, uh, with Jay, a, a 2009 Supreme Court case that really made it uh, really kind of incentivize courts to, to not do that analysis to identify constitutional violations and civil rights claims if they knew um, that qualified immunity would be granted, um, that that would sort of dispose of the case without them needing to do the work of deciding whether there had been a violation. I suppose maybe before getting into to that case, Pearson versus Callahan, and the sort of proposal that you, you, you write about in your paper that uh, nominal damages, 1983 claims could be brought to solve the problem of courts deciding qualified immunity first and not getting to the constitutional violation question. Um, can you just describe a bit about the qualified immunity approach before we had that um, Pearson versus Callahan case? Sure. Uh, well, the leading case before Pearson was Saucier against Katz. And in that case, the Supreme Court said, kind of for the first time, although it had previously suggested it, that lower courts should first address the constitutional merits of the claim, and then only after having clarified the constitutional law would they then proceed to determine whether that right, if any, were clearly established within the meaning of the qualified immunity standard specified in Harlow against Fitzgerald, and then um, only if it were clearly established would the individual plaintiff be allowed to pursue a claim for damages. So just to get a sense of how that works, think about a case like, say, Wilson versus Lane, which is a famous decision from about this period of time. The Supreme Court in that case confronted a challenge by individuals who wanted to um, impose liability on police officers who invited the media to come on what's referred to as a media ride-along, to come along with the, with the police as they did their business. And on this night in particular, the police uh, entered the home of an individual um, and brought the media without any permission or without any identification of that possibility in the warrant to watch what happened in the home at the time the police conducted their, their business there. And so the challenge was a Fourth Amendment challenge contesting the ability of the police to invite the media to come along. And in that case, the Supreme Court did sort of precisely what it said lower courts should do um, in addressing these kinds of questions. The first question the court addressed in Wilson was, are media ride-alongs consistent with the Fourth Amendment, at least when they involve uh, entry into a home like that? And the court said, no, that's a Fourth Amendment violation. And so now the law of the Fourth Amendment on that question has been clarified. But then it, set, it moved to the second step of the analysis, and, and that was to determine whether the law was before, pre, was previously understood to have been clearly established on that issue, such that the individual litigants could recover damages against the responsible police officers. And the court said no. It's not clearly enough to establish to satisfy the Harlow standard. So while the litigants were successful in one sense in clarifying the law for the future, they weren't successful in the second sense. They didn't actually recover any damages from the officers as a result of what was a violation of their Fourth Amendment right. We I spoke about kind of the, the, the background of the doctrine with, with Jay a bit on, on the earlier conversation, but... Um you, you've also written that um, that that second inquiry really was was absent from the the court's role going back to 
know, the, the, the beginning of the, the 1983 statute back in the mid to late uh, 19th century, and, and that there was sort of a, a separation of powers idea whereby the court just decided the, the legal question, the constitutional violation question, and it was left to the other branches to, to worry more about whether officers would be personally liable for those violations. Um, can you t- t- tell me a bit about you know, how the arrangement was at, at, at that time back when these cases first started to, to come to courts? Yeah, so the, the sort of common law model of government accountability as we inherited it from England and then sort of implemented in the early years of the Republic and Madison and Jefferson and Marshall were all right. They were at the table when this when this implementation took place. The model was that the courts just did the law, and so individuals would bring suits against officers of the government and try to impose liability on them under sort of common law doctrines of assault and battery, false false imprisonment, false arrest, that sort of thing. The officer would justify and say, I'm legally permitted to do this, and if that justification was for some reason rejected, that is to say because they had acted outside the law or outside the scope of constitutional uh, uh, protection, then they were subject to liability as individuals for damages. And in early cases, the Supreme Court specifically refused to recognize any kind of good faith or qualified immunity defense for the officers. And the reason is that the the view at the time was that it was not for the court to protect the officer. The responsibility fell to the Congress of the United States. And so what I found in some early research I did was that Congress would adopt legislation that would indemnify the officers for any liability that was imposed upon them as a result of one of these common law suits for damages. And pretty soon everybody just assumed that that was the model. So the courts did the law and decided whether the officer had violated the law. You couldn't sue the government itself because of the doctrine of sovereign immunity and the control of Congress over the payment of money from the Treasury. But you could sue the individual officer, and that's the way the lawsuits were structured. And then after the lawsuit succeeded, if it did, against the officer, then the money would actually come from the Treasury when Congress adopted indemnifying legislation. So. At that time, there wouldn't have been any sense that the court's responsibility was to moderate the force of the law in order to protect the officer from personal liability. That responsibility fell to the political branches of government, that is to say Congress as it structured its indemnification system. And so it's a little odd today, given the fact that indemnity remains a feature of our system of government accountability, especially where suits against officers are concerned, that the court has now justified its practice of qualified immunity in good measure by reference to the threat of personal liability, a threat that may not really be very acute. Fast forwarding back to to, yeah, to modern qualified immunity doctrine and the the sort of more rigid um, formula pre-Pearson and I suppose post-Saucier, uh, whereby courts would, in cases like this, eat begin with, uh, you know, they would decide both questions. They would first decide the, the constitutional violation question, whether one had happened, and then after that, uh, and separate um, from it, decide whether nonetheless qualified immunity required a, a dismissal. You've, you've noted some 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 quibbles with that approach that the courts or maybe scholars had prior to, to Pearson, those you know, running along the lines of what happens if um, an officer is deemed to have committed a constitutional violation. You know, it's a bad, a bad thing, but there, there are cases nonetheless disposed of 
via qu- uh, qualified immunity can can that be appealed and also i suppose some you know opinions of that nature might have the the you know appearance of a advisory opinion style ruling which is you know something courts don't tend to to make uh, can, you, can you talk to me about some of those those problems with the the doctrine prior to pearson Right. So the Saussier rule, uh, or the so-called order of battle in Saussier versus Katz, was quite controversial. And for a, a number of the reasons that you identify, that is to say, suppose you're in the Ninth Circuit and you're the officer litigating, and you believe that there is no constitutional right, as, as suggested by the plaintiff. So um, in a Wilson and Lane kind of situation, you're arguing that the Fourth Amendment doesn't really prohibit it media ride-alongs. And let's suppose that the lower court disposes of the case in the follow, in the Saucier and Katz way. That is to say, it finds first that there was a constitutional right to freedom from media ride-along participation in a search of a home. And second, it finds that the right was not sufficiently clearly established to overcome the officer's qualified immunity. So the officer is a prevailing party. Um, the officer has won. The case is dismissed on qualified immunity grounds. But the officer and the rest of the police departments in the jurisdiction in question, whether it's the Ninth Circuit or the Fourth Circuit or what have you, are now bound by a precedent that says no media ride-along. And they may not be able to appeal the immediate determination by the by the appellate court that uh, that produced that uh, adverse constitutional determination. So that was one of the criticisms. That's a criticism that the court has since addressed and tried to resolve in the Camrita case, and we can talk about that later. But another criticism of Saucier and Katz was the so-called advisory uh, opinion concern. That is to say, if, if the court decides the first issue, the merits first constitutional issue, it's really deciding a question that's not controlling in the particular case because the case is resolved on the basis that the right was not clearly established enough to warrant uh, the imposition of liability on the officer. And so some people have criticized the Saucier two-step regime or order of battle regime on the theory that it generates unnecessary rulings of constitutional law and, in effect, advisory opinions. I think that criticism, at least from a kind of Article Three judicial power perspective, is probably overblown, truth be told, because it is a controlling decision of the issue. It does set a binding precedent for the for the circuit. Um, and to the extent the issue is alive in the case, it will control the outcome of the dispute between these parties. So although a subsequent decision on a different issue means that, that um, the first merits uh, determination of the Constitutional may not be controlling in, in, a, in, in a, an immediate sense. I don't really think it's an advisory opinion in the sense that the Constitution prohibits the judges from issuing advisory opinions. The forms of adjudication have been preserved, and the court is not just offering its views to the executive branch in a non-binding posture. So I think that concern is a bit uh, more over is a bit overblown. One of the real concerns was the the sense that this order of battle imposed a tremendous burden on the lower federal courts. And it was lower federal court pushback, I think, that really eventually persuaded the Supreme Court to rethink 
the order of battle in Saucier and Katz. Uh, Judge Pierre Laval on the Second Circuit wrote a, a, a widely noted law review article that criticized the Saucier regime for um, unnecessarily requiring constitutional decisions. And for the lower federal courts, you can understand it might be much easier to dispose of a case on the basis that the law is not clearly established, whatever the rule might be than to have to first make a determination of the constitutional question, because that question might be quite difficult and freighted with all sorts of problems that might be better uh, avoided from the perspective of the lower federal court. And note that the Supreme Court is not put in this position by the Saucier rule because the Supreme Court has discretion over its docket. So it can pick and choose what cases it wants to opine about uh, and decide whether to hit the merits or to hit the qualified immunity question at, at its own discretion. But the lower federal courts don't have the same freedom. They have a hugely mandatory docket. And so the mandatory quality of the docket coupled with Saucier meant that they were, from their perspective, addressing a lot of constitutional issues that they would prefer to avoid. So then it sounds like at least in part um, in response to to some of the, the clamoring from lower courts and, and scholars, the high court decides in Pearson to do away with that rigid two-step process. I suppose what what does Pearson hold? Is it just that now lower courts are free to, to do the, the qualified immunity math in whatever order they, they would like to? Or are they supposed to now just look at qualified immunity first? What, what, what's the prescription from Pearson? Pearson says that the courts, the lower courts, are no longer required, as in Saucier, to address the merits of the constitutional claim first. They now have discretion, which is what the lower courts wanted. Um, the court does not prohibit the lower federal courts from addressing the merits issue first. And in fact, it says there may be real value in doing so, because it may be a situation in which the lower federal court is in a position to address a question of the constitutional merits that needs to be resolved and won't necessarily come up in another context. And so there are lots of situations in which a suit for damages that implicates qualified immunity is really the only mechanism by which you can adjudicate a claim of constitutional right and clarify constitutional rights going forward. And if you're in that kind of position, the court says, it might make sense for the lower court to go ahead and address the merits just to put that marker down for the future and then, you know, do what courts were encouraged to do or required to do in Saucier, and that is to address the um, qualified immunity clearly established question second. But Pearson also says that while you may find yourself wanting to do merits first, you're also quite free lower federal courts to dispose of the case purely on qualified immunity grounds and not reach the first constitutional question as Saucier had previously required. So you're right, it does, it does, in, it, it does allow the lower federal courts to exercise discretion over how to structure the decision-making process. They can do merits first if they want, or they can just dispose of the case on qualified immunity grounds if they prefer. Okay, and, and the main problem that you and, and many others have identified with, with that approach is that if more often than not those cases are decided on qualified immunity grounds without having reached the, the constitutional question, then really that, that constellation of, of known co- constitutional violations that make the doctrine you know, more developed, uh, it, it doesn't get to, to grow. Um, but one, one thing that folks have, have pointed out maybe we can get to that, that first, that 
might be a point that would assuage folks' worry on, on that score is that even before Pearson, where courts were expected to do a, a rigid two-step analysis, doing the constitutional question first and, and then the qualified immunity question, um, that the analysis would tend to just naturally blend a little bit if courts knew they were going to, to dispose of a case via qualified immunity anyways. It might cause them to lean a bit on the constitutional question to, to not find a violation, not to suggest they, they would not do the the analysis required, but the analysis just, would just be blended a little bit. Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that uh, th- argument? Yeah, it's really interesting to think about this sort of position that the required two-step process puts the federal judges in. Like a federal judge might say, or a federal bench might say, hey, we have a free pass here because we're going to find that the law is not clearly established, and so the officer is not going to be held accountable. Now, what constitutional law do we want to make? And there might be a sense in which, by being freed from any immediate consequences, the creation of that rule of constitutional law might be informed to some extent by the freedom that's created from the possible imposition of liability. In other words, if courts are uh, free to make law in the air, as it were, without having any immediate consequences in the particular case, then that might tend to shape the law that they make. Would that mean that they're more willing to push the law in a certain direction? Does it mean that they're more willing to pull the law back? And scholars have done a number of different studies to try to figure out what the real impact of Saucier versus Katz was. Was was the was the rule one that encouraged more merits-based determinations, or you know did it push the courts in one direction or another to recognize more constitutional rights or to deny more constitutional rights because they were forced to? address the merits of that question and and concluded that when when forced to do that they're going to actually turn back the constitutional claim at the first step of the process and then maybe not even reach the qualified they wouldn't need to reach the qualified immunity decision so one can one can model uh, judicial behavior uh, under the the sort of stringent two-step approach of Saucier versus Katz in a couple of different ways and scholars I don't think reached uh, uh, any complete agreement on what the incentives were and how the judges responded to those incentives. But it does illustrate the difficulty that one introduces into the judicial process when you create this gap between what the law is and what individuals can recover for if they show a violation, you know. So um, maybe it's just inherent in the doctrine of qualified immunity itself. Okay, then maybe moving to to the, the main problem that you have identified with order of battle dilemma and, and that the, the fact that courts might be able to, to commonly do the, the second part, the qualified immunity part, without the constitutional violation question. You identify that the doctrine of 1983 claims will, will, will tend to stagnate because of it. Could you just un, unpack that concern a, a bit for me? So imagine a world in which the law is changing or where the government is engaging in conduct for the first time. So media ride-alongs might be a good example because they emerge, you know, sort of as a result of popular interest in in policing and TV shows, kind of reality TV shows and that sort of thing. And now for the first time, the courts are called upon to decide how those media ride-alongs are integrated into the into the Fourth Amendment. And if you if you live in a world like that, where a new problem is presented 
and you can't make law in other ways. I mean, if you could make law with a habeas petition, or if you could make law with a suit for injunctive relief, or if you could make law with a motion to suppress evidence wrongly obtained, then you could articulate the constitutional rules and framework that define the behavior of the police in that context. But if there's no alternative mechanism by which to make law, the suit for damages is really the only plausible vehicle that individuals and courts can use to uh, articulate constitutional norms. And in a world where the government conduct is in some sense unprecedented, there will be, by definition, no clearly established law out there that identifies and articulates the constitutional limits of that government activity. And as a consequence, a strict or a thoroughgoing commitment to the doctrine of qualified immunity means that the courts may never get around to actually deciding the constitutional question. So in a world where media ride-alongs emerge for the first time, it may be that there's no clear law and courts will just simply dismiss suits for damages and the law will settle in a way at a place that is less protective of rights than it would have settled had the courts been encouraged to actually address the constitutional questions more forthrightly. I see this problem specifically in a more acute form in the reaction of the federal courts to the torture claims that were asserted by individuals as a result of the Bush administration's war on terror and the use of extraordinary rendition, enhanced interrogation, and the like as a way to um, try to coerce individuals to give information uh, who are being held as enemy combatants, the ones being held at black sites around the world and held at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib and elsewhere. Because when those cases are litigated in the federal court system, and they can only be litigated in suits for damages, you're not going to be able to file a petition for habeas in the middle of a waterboarding session. You're not going to be able to file a petition for injunctive relief to stop the waterboarding. That is, by definition, the whole purpose of the enterprise is to place the individuals beyond the reach of the court system. So the only mechanism for testing the legality and constitutionality is an after-the-fact suit for damages. And one of the things that the courts have have said in response to those claims is, well, we can't say for sure that the law is sufficiently clearly established to allow these damage claims to go forward against the officers responsible for enhanced interrogation and extraordinary rendition and the like. So those lawsuits have essentially all been dismissed, uh, some of them on qualified immunity grounds, some on other grounds. And so now we live in a world post 9-11 and post the war on terror in which we don't have any controlling precedent out there that says that waterboarding is unconstitutional. We don't have any controlling precedent that says that kidnapping an individual and taking him to a black site in Poland uh, for waterboarding is unconstitutional. That law has not been made, and one of the reasons it hasn't been made is the doctrine of qualified immunity. That's a very striking way to, to illustrate the issue you pose. Now, so to to help solve that problem, you write that you know you could potentially detach that second piece, the qualified immunity defense piece of the the judicial inquiry, if folks just brought instead of claims for damages, claims for for nominal damages, so essentially for for no money, for one dollar, for just a a decision on whether their constitutional rights had, had been violated. Um, walk, walk me through how that would work. There seem to be some issues that you, you pose and, and respond to in your paper, namely whether it's clear or not 
1983 defendants could still bring a qualified immunity defense, even if damages weren't being sought, you know, whether or not uh, it'd be uh, the sort of thing that would encourage too many or perhaps too few plaintiffs to come forward. I guess walk me through the idea of nominal damage claims being brought in this context as a way to develop, to pose and have answered constitutional questions. So here's the idea. Um, the common law always recognized from like the 14th century on that that claimants seeking damages could recover uh, a nominal award. And today in the United States, it's typically a dollar, but the, the, the amount of the nominal award has sort of varied over time. It's never been anything more than the nominal, obviously. Um, and the whole point of the enterprise was to facilitate uh, an adjudication of a legal claim of right. So think about a trespass that doesn't actually result in any property any property damages, so you don't have any like consequential damages as a result of the trespass, but you want to establish in your suit for nominal damages that your legal rights were violated. And that means that the defendant, if your claim is successful, will be on notice that future violations will also violate uh, a legal right, and and that the, the, the line, the boundary line that you insist upon that you're trying to protect with your trespass, trespass action will then be presumably respected in the future. Um, so that's a longstanding practice uh, of common law courts to award nominal damages and to effectively kind of just perform a declaratory function. You're really just about declaring the rights of the parties and saying that there was an invasion of those rights here. Maybe no real damages resulted, but uh, a nominal award will, in a sense, certify the existence of the rights violation. And in that context, you're actually making law and explicating the law without any substantial money changing hands. So if you think that the qualified immunity doctrine is, in a sense, designed by the Supreme Court to protect the officer from the threat of personal liability, then nominal damages would work pretty well in providing the same assurance. So the idea is that if you're only threatening the officer with a buck, then the officer is not chilled, is not threatened, is not facing the threat of substantial personal liability. And so the parade of horribles that the court has has used to justify the doctrine of qualified immunity arguably are rendered less clearly applicable to that kind of litigation. And so the suit for nominal damages might then come to be seen somewhat like the suit for a petition for habeas corpus, which also names an officer but doesn't threaten personal liability. The suit for injunctive relief, which names an officer but doesn't threaten personal liability, and so on. And so it would just add an additional sort of vehicle for the litigation of those kinds of claims in which, for a variety of reasons having to do mostly with standing doctrine, the individual litigant can't bring a, a lawsuit for habeas or a lawsuit for injunctive relief. If you can only seek damages, then maybe a nominal suit for damages could qualify the qualified immunity defense. I suppose um, just one one other question on that. I suppose what what does the plaintiff in a suit like that look like? Uh, you know, I imagine most of the folks that that do bring those types of claims are interested in having their constitutional rights vindicated, but also for you know recovering for damages that that resulted i suppose like in the example you mentioned there could be is there an equivalent in this context like the trespassing example where there you know kind of the harm was more symbolic and so you know damages might not really be needed or or you know that pertinent in that instance 
Right. So one leading example of uh, the use of nominal damages in the constitutional court tort context is in the case where an individual student's rights to procedural due process were violated when he was disciplined at school. And the court upheld the claim of right and said, yes, your due process rights were violated and awarded $1 as a kind of symbol of the rights violation. But because the student hadn't suffered any collateral consequences as a result of the school discipline that was imposed, there were no consequential or punitive damages available for the rights violation that took place. Not all people who you know have been the victims of a rights violation on the part of the, the government, either state or federal, are going to be in a position to pursue nominal damages claims. Many of them have suffered genuine harm, and they're seeking compensation for the harms that they have suffered. But there's an example of a case, Jose Padilla, who was trying to establish the principle that he was free as a U.S. citizen from improper military detention as part of the war on terror. He brought some lawsuits after he was discharged from military custody against a couple of different folks to try to establish the principle that citizens of the United States are not subject to detention uh, uh, by the military. And those claims were turned aside on qualified immunity grounds, even though he had agreed to accept, in some cases, nominal damages. So... Um, so the lower courts, in this case, the Fourth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit, turned those claims away. Um, what would a nominal damages claimant look like? It would be a person perhaps like uh, Mr. Padilla who um, wanted to establish a principle and was represented by a public interest group that had agreed to underwrite, finance the, the cost of the litigation. It's obviously not going to be the sort of litigation that the private bar will necessarily race to embrace because there's not going to be uh, an award of damages or an award of attorney's fees under uh, under 1983 or 1988 for successful litigation, and that makes it much less attractive from a private practitioner's perspective. So it's a slightly, you know, small, I think it would be a small set of potential litigants, but it would be those folks who are trying to move the law along uh, in a in a world where it might otherwise stagnate, and it, it would it would address the concern with stagnation for that group of litigants and public interest law firms. I think. We'll go ahead and, and leave it there uh, for now, Professor James Fander from Northwestern Law School. Really appreciate your taking the time to be on the podcast. It was my pleasure. And with that, our show for April thirteenth, two thousand eighteen, is complete. Once more, thanks very much to both of my guests, Jay Schweikert from the Cato Institute and James Fander, professor of law at Northwestern. Thanks also to you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Thanks also to my production staff here, including Nick Perez. And thanks to our editor, David Houston and Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.